Friends, you, you may have noticed that our brother John, who's sitting over here, had to be taken out of the service. He's not feeling well, and uh, he's being cared for by paramedics right now. So I would like, before we preach, before we get to the, to the preaching of the word, let's pray for our brother John. Father, you are the Lord of the whole universe, Lord. It is not too hard for you to do anything. So, Lord, when we face storms and trials, Lord, we run to you. And right now, our brother John is having some sort of uh, physical episode. Lord, we pray for John. Lord, we pray for his body. We pray, Lord, that you'd strengthen him, that you'd be with him right now, even as he is in the foyer right now being attended by the paramedics. Lord, we pray for the paramedics that are caring for him right now. We pray that you would give him wisdom and insight from you that they would care for John well. Lord, we pray uh, that, John, that Brother John would, would uh, be well. Uh, Lord, but primarily, Father, we pray for his soul. We pray for his soul to be well, which is always our request, Lord. Our bodies, they're, they're here for a certain number of decades, and then, and then they're not but our souls live forever. Yes, our bodies will be resurrected one day. But we pray, Father, that right now you would be near to Brother John, that you'd be with him. And Lord, we eagerly await to hear news of how he's doing so we can continue praying for him and so we can continue sustaining him, uh, Lord, with our prayers and with our care. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, today... It, um, the ushers are going to come forward. They're passing out the notes. These are the notes for the sermon today. We're, get, we're getting back to our uh, Gospel of Mark series. We, we've been here uh, for several months. We've taken breaks and we've done different series. Uh, now we're going to be on Mark for a long stretch. Okay, We're going to cover probably the next four or five chapters with no interruptions. And uh, so today we turn to Mark 4, 35 through 41. And, and this is the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. In 1982, great year by the way, a new channel launched on cable television. This was a different concept specializing in one subject, the weather. In its inception, the weather channel didn't have a certain future. After all, can people be so interested in the weather that they might be willing to watch it on television for 24 hours a day. The Weather Channel itself 
didn't demonstrate too much confidence in its own idea as its, as its original slogan first said, we take the weather seriously, but not ourselves. Now imagine the background conversation of the creation of the weather channel. Let's make a new channel. Let's do it. What is it going to be about? Let's make it about the weather. Okay. What are we going to show in it? The weather forecast. That's it? That's it. Genius. But the reality is that the popularity and credibility of the Weather Channel has grown exponentially in the past 40 years. In a poll conducted by the newspaper The Economist in 2022, Americans regarded the Weather Channel as the most trustworthy media organization. As Floridians, we know very well that we don't need to worry about a hurricane until Jim Contori shows up, right? Now, there are lots of things that Americans consider trustworthy that are, not, that are quite questionable. So I'm not making an endorsement of the Weather Channel. I'm just, I'm just pointing out to you how fascinated we are with the weather. But if our fascination with the weather prediction is so great, how much more fascinating would it be for us to watch a man who is not only, be, who's not only able to predict the weather, but is also able to control the weather. What does it mean that someone is able to control the weather? With all the technology that we have today, we're not able to do that. Who could possibly do such a thing? We turn today to one of the most popular stories about Jesus in the Gospels, the calming of the Red Sea. I'm sorry, not the Red Sea, of the Sea of Galilee. Wrong sea. The story fascinates little children. The story fascinates artists, world-class artists, and everyone else in between. Often, we rush to apply the story to ourselves. This text is about Jesus calming the storms of my life. And it is true, Jesus often does that. It is also true that Jesus often brings storms into our lives. This story is much greater than my own personal experience. This story is much greater than the storms of our personal lives. The heart of the story is revealed by the question at the end of the story, who then is this? My hope for you today is that you'll be able to answer this question accurately. Who is this? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? This is a very important question. It is a question of identity. As a matter of fact, this is the most important question you can consider your entire life. The way you answer the question of Jesus' identity in your heart, okay, not just mouth, not just head, in your heart, will ultimately determine whether or not you will be safe in Him for eternal life. 
Now let's review a little bit because we're in chapter 4. So let's review a little bit of what happens in chapters 1 through 3. There is absolutely no ambiguity for Mark concerning the question of who Jesus is. For Mark, Jesus is the Son of God. But not in the same way we, we who are in Christ, are considered children of God. No, we are children of God by adoption. But Jesus is the Son of God by nature. Meaning, He shares the nature of God with the Father and with the Spirit. To be the Son of God is to be God Himself. Mark makes this clear in the opening verse of his gospel. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A few verses later, the Father himself from heaven declares the same thing about Jesus at his baptism. Mark 1.11, and a voice came from heaven. This is the Father speaking. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Not only that, but demons themselves who knew Jesus from eternity past declare the same truths every time. And whenever, Mark 3.11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Curiously, no man has been able to make such declaration about Jesus thus far in the Gospel of Mark. And this is literally the genius of Mark. This is, this is his literary genius. That which Mark so plainly declared in verse 1 of chapter 1, that Jesus is the Son of God, he then unpacks through his entire book, not by saying over and over that Jesus is the Son of God, but by showing that he is who he says he is. It is not until Jesus' death on the cross in chapter 15 that a man, the Roman centurion who crucified him, finally declares this truly is the Son of God. So from chapter 1 to chapter 15, Mark refrains from saying that from a human perspective. Why? So that we can see it. Interesting that he says that after Jesus dies, after his work is complete, it is necessary for us to see the fullness of the work of Christ, to understand his divinity. This is why we can't take this story and apply it directly to us. Immediate. It comes within the context of who Jesus is. And this is what we see in our text today, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Our text today tells us Jesus is God. And how do we know that? Because Jesus has power over creation. He has power over disaster. For the next four weeks, our next four sermons, 
will consider Jesus power. If Jesus is powerful over the things that we're going to see over the next four weeks, he is the Son of God. That's the argument that Mark is making. So there is a short series within the series of Mark. Today, we'll consider Mark, uh, Jesus' power over disaster, next week over demons, the week after over disease, and finally we'll consider his power over death. So let's turn to our text today as we seek to answer the question, who is Jesus? Friends, Jesus, like us, is a man. Notice that the narrative begins with the words, on that day, Jesus, constrained by time. That's indicating that this is still the same day that we studied back in November. Finally, in chapter 4, Mark begins laying out Jesus' teaching. Mark often said Jesus teaches with authority, but from chapters 1 through 3, he doesn't, doesn't show that much. But in chapter 4, we see that. And how, how did Jesus teach? Primarily in Mark, we see Jesus teaching through parables. We see four parables in chapter 4, the parable of the soils which Jesus says is the key to interpret all parables, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. All of these parables are depictions of the kingdom of God. Remember back in chapter 1, Jesus is stating the central piece of his teaching when he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In essence, every time Jesus taught, he taught the entrance into the kingdom of God through the gospel. The gospel is the the transformative message of Jesus and his life. The kingdom is made up by those who submit their lives to Jesus and his gospel. The gospel is available for all to hear, but only those who receive it enter the kingdom. So this tension between the gospel that is available to all And the kingdom that is for those who receive the gospel, this tension creates the distinction we see in the gospel of Mark between insiders and outsiders. In Mark, those who are expected to be the insiders are really the outsiders because they hear the gospel and they reject it. These are the scribes. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, even Jesus' very own earthly family. But those who are supposed to be outsiders are really insiders. Sinners, tax collectors, the religious ostracized, simple fishermen. So after a long day of teaching, Jesus 
says to his circle of insiders, let us go. Let us go across to the other side, the other side of the lake known as the Sea of Galilee, that is. And after Jesus says this, for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, we see the disciples taking charge. We have been around the town of Capernaum since chapter 1, where Jesus lived at Peter's and Andrew's house. Much of the life of the town existed around the lake. The disciples were very familiarized with this lake. The lake was the primary source of economy for the town. The lake was the primary means of transportation, as we see today in our text. And as we have seen, the interactions between Jesus and the crowds, the lake was even a place for social and religious activity. At least four of Jesus' disciples, perhaps up to even seven of them, were fishermen on this lake. That's how they lived. That's how they provided for their family. They knew this lake well. They were there every day. Perhaps because of their familiarity with this lake, the disciples seem to really take the lead here. Notice what they do. After leaving the crowd, they take Jesus with them. Jesus, who is God, is being led by men. Mark tells us that they took Jesus as he was. No change of clothes, no shower, no time for a quick meal. They live on the boat, and other boats come along with him, perhaps other disciples besides the 12 apostles. So here we see a small flotilla of Jesus' inner circle. It seems that the disciples' confidence is growing. Jesus, you take care of the teaching, but we handle the sea. We're in control of that. You take care of the spiritual aspect of things, but we got the logistics. As though teaching requires spirituality and logistics don't. This is a good reminder for us today, right? There's no aspect, aspect of the church life or of our lives that is not spiritual. When we become overly confident in our physical abilities and neglect the spiritual aspect of things, we often find ourselves in great storms. Buildings and grounds require the same faith that teaching Sunday school requires. Don't believe me? Ask Ted Wolf. Kitchen and stewardship are indifferent from missions and evangelism. Anything that is of eternal consequence, in other words, everything in church life, requires faith. But in verse 37, we see a great change. A windstorm arose. 
The word for windstorm here can be translated as hurricane. More than that, it is described as a great hurricane. The word for great is mega, a mega storm. And this is the first of three times that we're going to see the word mega in our text. The storm was so great that, the even, that even the waters were filling up the boats. In 1986, a boat was discovered in the Sea of Galilee. This boat dates back to the first century, so around the time of Jesus. This boat is known as the Jesus boat, although there's no evidence that Jesus was ever on it or his disciples. But this boat gives us an idea of what the boat in our story probably was like. The boat found in 1986 was 27 by 7 and a half feet long and about 4 feet tall. It would fit about 15 people. Just about what is needed for Jesus and his disciples. The Sea of Galilee is a fairly large freshwater lake. The Jordan River runs through it. It sits almost 700 feet below sea level. That's pretty low. But only 11 miles away from the Sea of Galilee sits Mount Tamer, famous mountain where Joshua won a great battle. Mount Tamer stands about 2,000 feet above sea level. A very great contrast in geography. So when the wind comes down from the cold mountain top and makes its, its way to the hot and humid surface of the lake, pretty big storms form. And it was one of these storms that Jesus and his disciples found themselves in. But notice in verse 38, what is Jesus doing? He's asleep after a day of teaching, probably healing, probably exorcisms, probably interactions with scribes and Pharisees. Jesus was tired. So the Son of God rested. True humanity being displayed here. Jesus' need for rest is both a reminder for us of his humanity and for our own need for rest. He is like us in his frailty, in his weakness. And if it's okay for Jesus to sleep, it is okay for us to sleep too. I had a seminary professor that often said, Sometimes the godliest thing you can do is sleep. Rest is a gift from God, and we ought to receive it as such. It reminds us of His wisdom and our need. When we rest, we recognize that God is in control. God demonstrates His wisdom to us by resting after the sixth day of creation, not out of necessity. But Jesus demonstrates our need for rest as he rests after working. I remember one time I was counseling a lady in her 70s. 
who was struggling in significant ways with anxiety. She told me she hadn't been able to sleep in a long time. So I opened up the Bible and took her to the passage that we had read this morning. Psalm 127, verse 2, and I read this to her. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I remember watching her shoulders drop and her countenance change as she understood where rest comes from. King David, in light of difficult circumstances, in his life writes in Psalm 4, four verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Friends, Jesus rested, reminding us that rest is good and rest is necessary. But notice that Jesus is the only one resting in the boat, isn't he? Sometimes resting is hard. Sometimes sleeping is difficult. His disciples are not resting at all. Why? Why is Jesus resting while his disciples are not? Jesus is able to rest because he trusted the Father while his disciples did not. Proper rest is a matter of faith. Sleep is a statement that God is in control and we're not. To have a pattern of work and rest in our lives is to say we are not God. Only God is God. Jesus worked as though God is in control and he rested as though God is in control. As a man, he modeled how we ought to work and how we ought to rest. Friends, when we know God is in control... And he has our best interest in mind, we rest. We're able to put our head on the cushion and rest. This was not the case with the disciples at all. They were not at peace, they were not resting, they were not sleeping. They were instead plagued with fear, they were overwhelmed with anxiety. I mean, these are experienced fishermen. They lived around the lake. They knew this lake like the back of their hands, and yet they were filled with fear. Fear is powerful, isn't it? We all struggle with fear in different ways. We may struggle with fears in greater ways in different seasons of our lives. Change produces Fear, the unexpected produces fear. I mean, it is easy for us to think that the disciples had no reason to fear for Jesus was in the boat, but we know our frame. We know our weakness. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Lord, do you not care about my pain, my loneliness? My health? Lord, why don't you give me a better job, more money, more stability? Lord, why can't I meet someone who cares for me? Lord, why is it that I can never find satisfaction and contentment 
in life. Friends, we ask the same question. We just ask them, we just ask the question in a different way. Children, do you struggle with fear? I'm sure you do in some ways. What you may not realize is that we adults do too. We struggle in different ways. In reality, the ways that we usually struggle are often different than the ways that you struggle. Well, we are all struggling together. We often care too much about what people think of us. We're often afraid that God won't provide things like food, housing, money to pay the bills. Your fears are probably a little different, but they're there. There's a sense in which this is normal. So I want to encourage you. But although the disciples did not need to be afraid in that boat, they actually teach us the right thing to do when we're afraid. So, children, I want you to look at the disciples and I want you to ask, what did they do? And how can I learn from the disciples when I struggle with fear? They go to Jesus. And what we, right, who are older than you, we would love for you to know is that when you're afraid, you can go to Jesus. You know, Jesus... Jesus is God, that means he's everywhere. So when your room is dark, Jesus is there. When you're feeling alone, when you're not sure where your parents are, Jesus is there. So, so the disciples, yes, they're weak, but so are we. So are you. So we can do exactly what the disciples did. And so how do we do that? Children, how, how do you go to Jesus? You pray. So when you're afraid, here's a great thing to do. Pray, Jesus, help me know that you're here. Help me know you're near. Friends, when we're plagued with fear, the only right response is for us to take our fears to Jesus. What fears fill up your heart today? What anxieties fill up your mind. I was talking to Indy yesterday about how a new year can be filled with so much expectation and how exciting that is, but how often our expectations fall short of their realizations. Disappointment can so easily settle in. But God says in Psalm 55, 22, cast your burdens, your anxieties, your fears on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. The man, Christ Jesus, cares. His humanity enables Him to identify with us. The disciples knew that, so they ran to Jesus. Make this your resolution for 2023. Run to Jesus. But not only is Jesus able to identify with us, because he's a man. He's powerful to keep us from falling prey to our own fears. Because Jesus, unlike us, is God. This passage of Scripture is one of the clearest places where we see 
what theologians call the hypostatic union of Jesus. Hypostatic union simply means that the perfect union between Jesus' humanity and His divinity in nature. The God who never sleeps nor slumbers wakes up to save His brothers. We affirm a Savior who is in every way human. So He is near. Therefore, He is able to step on the boat with His disciples and endure the storm with them. We affirm a Savior who is in every way God. Therefore, He is able to deliver His loved ones from the storm. If Jesus was just human, He would be in the boat at the mercy of the storm. If He was just God, He would not be in the boat. But because He is both, He is there and He is able to do something. So Jesus, the God who never sleeps nor slumbers, wakes up and delivers delivers the first of his two rebukes in the text. This time, not to his disciples, not for waking him up. Now, if you have a three-year-old and a seven-month-old, you know what it's like to wake up to a storm outside of your door. Patience is not usually the first thing that comes out of your mouth, although it should be. Jesus is standard towards his disciples. That's a sign of his divinity, isn't it? That the one, the one we find, Jesus, asleep in scriptures. What do his disciples do? They wake him up. And yet he speaks not to them at first, he speaks to the wind. And the seas, this is God. He literally says, silence, hush, be still. Jesus, what are you doing? Are you talking to the storm? Yes. And what does the storm do? What do the seas do? They obey. And what the first time we saw the word mega used towards the storm, now we see it used again. But now it is a mega calm, a great calm. Jesus, the author of creation, is used to speaking order into creation. Jesus, the author of creation in Genesis 1, is here, ordering creation. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. This order. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Order. And there was light. Jesus has been speaking order into the universe. Since the first day of creation, the universe is used to hearing the voice of Jesus and obeying His commandments. That's why the seas obey, the winds obey. He did not only speak to the universe in the beginning. He constantly upholds the universe with His voice. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So when the seas and when the wind hear the words of Christ, they say, that's my Lord. I obey him. 
What the disciples didn't understand is that though Jesus was sleeping in the boat, at that very moment, the whole universe was being held together by his word. How could the seas cause the sustainer of the universe to succumb to its waves? How could the seas swallow up its Savior? How could the seas seize the life of the Son of God? It is impossible. Creation knows its Creator. Creation knows its Lord. It hears it's for his voice, and it obeys him. Although on the outside it seems to the disciples that Jesus was with them, but their life was in peril because of the raging seas. Because they were with Jesus, they were in the safest place they could possibly be, even in the midst of the tempest. And this is why Jesus issues a second rebuke. This time, not to the seas, not to the wind, but to the disciples. They did not have faith. Instead, they chose fear. But is it true that fear is a choice? It was. It was here, wasn't it? Otherwise, Jesus could not rebuke his disciples. It is true that they reacted to fear. But friends, just as I told you a few weeks ago that you are responsible, we are responsible for our emotions, we are also responsible for our reactions. We cannot think of ourselves as victims of fears, of fear. We're called to battle fear at all moments. Adam was not justified in saying that he ate the fruit because he reacted to Eve. Eve was not able to be justified because she ate the fruit because she reacted to the serpent. No, we are responsible for our reactions. But how do we battle fear? We battle fear as we grow in faith. As we teach our hearts to trust in a God who is in control, the more we believe in the sovereignty of God, the more we believe in the providence of God, the more we believe that God is truly in control of all things, the greater is our strength against fear. The great sin that the disciples committed was their faithlessness in the sovereignty of Christ. They did not believe Jesus was in control. Is the God who is with you when your feet are firm planted on the ground not the same God who is with you when you are 35,000 feet in the air? Is the God who is with you in the pleasant vacation not the same God who is with you when you walk into the doctor's office? Is the God who is with you during the easy season of your marriage not the same God who is with you during the hard seasons? If so, why do we fear? God is with us and He is in control during the calm and during the storm. 
The disciples believed that Jesus was not in control during the storm, but he was. So when we learn this, we'll react differently when the storms come near us. When we learn to trust the sovereign God of the universe in every life circumstance, we actually begin to appreciate storms. Why? Because storms are excellent for the strengthening of the faith. Have you met someone who has suffered much in life and yet is exuberant in joy? There's much to be learned from that, isn't there? The disciples thought their safety depended on their ability to distance themselves from the storm. Jesus sent the storm away from us, but in actuality, their safety depended simply on their nearness to Christ, regardless of the storm. It is better to be in the storm with Christ than in the calm sea, but apart from Christ. Now in the last verse, Mark one more time uses the word mega. Now, referring to the disciples themselves. They were filled with great fear. So they asked themselves, who then is this? We thought we were starting to figure out this whole ministry thing. We were leading him from place to place. We were in control, weren't we? We're finally starting to flourish in our roles. We're starting to get it together. He told us we're given the secret of the kingdom, but we don't even know who this man is. Jesus led them out of a physical storm straight into a spiritual storm. You may have heard of the calm after the storm, but this is the storm after the calm. As Jesus rebukes his disciples, he's saying to them, Do you know who I am? I am God. If you are with me, you're safe. Now go to sleep. Rest. Lift up your burdens, your cares, your worries. I am near. Trust me. Believe me. Friends, how long have you been walking with Christ? How long have you had faith in Christ? Don't you know He's near? Don't you know He cares? Don't you know He promises never to leave you, nor forsake you? Don't you know your Lord, your Savior? I told you in the beginning that this story was not about Jesus calming the storms of our lives. Not in one moment, but in the big picture, yes. In the whole of our lives, when we're outside of Christ, we face storm alone. But when we come into Christ, He shelters us. Many times the storms in our lives are brought about by God Himself as He orchestrates our lives for our good and for His glory. I should say, every time. The story is about Jesus, who He is. And the story is about His kingdom. Jesus is God, and His kingdom 
will stand against all opposition. Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is found with Christ. The church is protected. So really, the question is, have you entered the kingdom of God? Have you entered the church? Are you finding shelter in the kingdom of God against the gates of hell? Or are you standing against hell alone? You know, I looked up several artistic renditions of this story. And my favorite one is a 1633 painting by Dutch painter Rembrandt called Storm on the Sea of Galilee. By the way, this painting was, uh, painting was actually stolen out of a museum in Massachusetts in 1980 and is still missing today. The painting depicts a raging, a raging sea and 14 men. Jesus, at peace. The 12 disciples filled with fear. But that's 13. Who is the 14th man? Rembrandt adds himself to the boat. He understood that this boat was an invitation. This boat was an invitation to safety. This boat is an invitation to Christ. This boat, boat is an invitation to the kingdom. This boat is an invitation to eternal life. Not because of the boat itself, but because Christ is in the boat. Friends, Christ would go on to face another storm. This one he would face alone. The storm is called the cross. He would take that cross upon himself and he would die on it. His disciples would not be on the cross with him, although they would go on to bear their own crosses. This table that we have before us is a remembrance of that cross that Jesus took upon himself. Jesus died on that cross so that we could be welcomed into him. Jesus is our boat. On that cross, Jesus paid for the sins of his people. On that cross, Jesus paid for our sins. On the cross, friends, we find forgiveness. On the cross, we find ourselves united with Christ. So at this moment, I would like to invite the deacons to come forward as we prepare our hearts to remind ourselves of this great storm that Jesus endured and found victory.